1: Hi there and welcome to New Books in South Asian Studies. I'm your host Ian Cook and today we're talking about bits of belonging, information technology, water and neoliberal governance in India. The book is written by Samanti Deskupta and is published by Temple University Press in 2015. Samanti is an Associate Professor of Anthropology at the University of Dayton. So what is it that links a water privatisation scheme and a prominent software company in India's Silicon City, Bangalore? In this book, uh, Symante explores the ways in which the corporate governance of IT is seen as a model for urban development in contemporary India. And she does this through ethnographic research into both a water privatisation scheme and the practices of this IT company. And in doing so, she reveals the similarities that cross-cut both domains as new and old inequalities are produced and and reproduced. It's very rich in detail and it's fascinating in its analytical drive to, to bring these two domains together. And in doing so, it opens up new avenues for thinking about citizenship and belonging. I had the pleasure of speaking with Samanti just a few moments before. Okay, so it gives me great pleasure to welcome Samanti to New Books in South Asian Studies. Um, your book is a Ethnography of the IT Industry in Bangalore, specifically the, the paradigmatic company, company Infosys. But it's not only that, you also go beyond IT. I was wondering, could you start by telling us why the Company Infosys interested you and what made you want to go beyond the confines of the company uh, in your research and what you found when you did.
0: Um, yeah, and thank you very much for this opportunity. Um, it's a great pleasure to talk about a book that's finally come into being after many years of uh, research. This actually started as my dissertation project. Um, so uh, it's a kind of a serendipitous story because when I started uh, thinking about grad school, uh, doing my PhD, uh, what I really wanted to do is to work on something that would capture contemporary India, uh, but not contemporary India from obviously one perspective, but a larger perspective. And I was traditionally trained as a in the Marxist tradition, so class was something that was very much um, uh, something that I wanted to explore. So, um, so what came into um, what I started gradually realizing is that one of the best ways to kind of think about contemporary India is kind of looking at uh, the rise of information technology in India and India becoming a global destination um, in terms of software development. And uh, so I took up a job. uh, I I had a few months before I was starting grad school. So um, I had about like 10 months. So I took up a job in uh in IT, one of the IT companies located in Princeton, New Jersey. Uh to get kind of the inside view of, you know, what goes on in the industry. And this this company especially was very well situated because they were headquartered in Princeton, but most of the work was actually being done in uh Hyderabad at that time. So it gave me a good insight into like the working of the software, the narrative software companies used and kind of also straddling uh, between uh, U.S. and India. But again, my you know, I knew that my research would not necessarily focus on the transnational, but I was actually more interested in basing it in India. So as I started working and I kind of started understanding the industry, I kind of understood that um, Uh, people were, especially Indians in the company, were very proud of the fact that India is finally, you know, on the map, not for poverty necessarily only, but also for something as robust as information technology, the software destination and whatnot. And as I mentioned in my book, um, Uh, A lot of my colleagues, actually, when I told them that this is what I'm thinking, they were really very encouraging. And it was like, yeah, you need to do this. But obviously, they did not quite get the entire picture. Like from an anthropological perspective, the book would be actually a little more critical than just narrating the success of I.T., But anyway, I started grad school and I started exploring. So uh, Bangalore was not uh, really... I mean, I was thinking between Bangalore and Hyderabad. uh, Where should I go? Because uh, one of the reasons was because I would have access to our company in Hyderabad and they were very willing to provide me with that access. But over time, talking to several people who were in software, you know, Bangalore emerged as a kind of a more, what you would say, what I would say like a quote unquote, a natural choice because Bangalore, it was is the science capital of india after independence it hosted it had several industries like infrastructure industries so bangalore had a kind of historically the historical depth for it to emerge there so i decided on bangalore now the next question is you know how did i get to infosys and now that was one of the very important pieces of this because uh how do i decide on infosys infosys was actually kind of the choice uh, one would go with because uh, not only because of its success, because Wipro is actually larger than Infosys, if you talk about revenue. But however, uh, the CEO at that time and, you know, mentor like Narayan Murthy and Nandan Nilekani had a very big presence in the public uh, imagination, especially of the middle class, which really interested me. So they were kind of not just um, within the software industry and very successful entrepreneurs, but also had this presence, and what I would, uh, what I was trying to understand is uh, the public imagination of this new India. So, kind of, I went from there to Infosys, and now I did not know anybody at Infosys at that time. But a friend of mine who was a journalist at that time uh, was able to get me uh, Nanda Nilekhani's email address, and I wrote to him and I said, "Okay, this is who I am. I'm a graduate student, and I want to, you know, study." the rise of IT and all that. And he actually responded back. And that summer, I landed in Bangalore, uh, started working with Infosys. But those two summers, uh, where the first two summers were mostly doing spade work, kind of, you know, introducing myself, introducing my project and what I wanted to do. And then, of course, the longer term field work, which adjusted lasted about 18 months, was uh, between 2004 and 2005. Um. But when I went to Infosys for the first time and, you know, the initial visits, one thing was becoming very clear to me that I was not going to tell just a story of IT. Like that seemed to me a very simplistic story, like even from an anthropological perspective, even from science and technology studies Um, Yes, the rise of IT and software and India and whatnot, those make sense. But I was more interested in the politics of IT. And by politics, I mean, like, how was it becoming mostly a middle class politics? The major question that I was trying to um, answer is like, who is being left out of this imagination, that the imagination of India rising or India shining, all those phrases that we were familiar with at that time. But at that time, it also became important, like I needed to kind of turn the lens on um, IT. Uh, Rather than looking outside from IT, I needed to turn the lens onto IT. And that's where I started looking for another site which would actually help me critically examine what IT was. And at that time, uh, I think this was during the very uh, first month in 2004, when I started doing my long-term fieldwork. Infosys actually invited me to the citizens' meeting in Bangalore. In the city of Bangalore, and if you, if anybody is familiar with Bangalore, you know, now it's a different. Greater Bangalore has now been marched with uh, the municipality of Bangalore. But at that time, Bangalore municipality was actually separate from Greater Bangalore. Now Infosys was in Greater Bangalore. They invited me to this citizens' meeting, and I was very surprised. And that they said that Nandan Nilekhani is going to be heading this meeting. I was just intrigued by the whole idea of the citizens' meeting in the city of Bangalore. And they said this was about water. I was like, wow, water and Nilekhani and a citizens' meeting, all of these came together in a very intriguing manner. But anyway, that evening I show up at the citizens' meeting. And fortunately, and, you know, this is kind of, I always say, this is the beauty of fieldwork, is once you're there and you're kind of enmeshed and embedded in this, so many things happen And everything kind of started coming together at this meeting because they were talking about this uh, water privatization project that would be taking place in Bangalore. It's called the Greater Bangalore Water Supply and Sanitation Project, or as in India, with acronyms, we say GBWASP. So this was a very large scale uh, privatization project. However, the very important aspect of this privatization project was that it also had... Uh, citizens' contribution part to it, uh, so that became like a public-private uh, project. But what really intrigued me about these two sides, uh, working at Infosys and working in uh, on this uh, privatization water privatization project, is that the same narrative, uh, the corporate narrative of transparency and accountability, were present in both these sites. What is even more interesting is the citizen participation component which was uh, being funded by the Water and Sanitation Project of the World Bank the man and his wife who were, the man actually Ramesh Ramanathan who was leading the citizens participation project as part of his um, NGO uh, was actually um, was actually had actually worked with Nandan Neelakhani in the BATF, the Bangalore Agenda Task Force, where they tried to, you know, overhaul the whole image of Bangalore as this global city. So there was this very fascinating continuity between uh, IT industry and kind of the water project. So that is what I was trying and, and, and tried to bring together in terms of in my book to understand that water, which is otherwise considered a basic amenity, and in India, it's actually more than a basic event, it's also sacred. Um, how do these otherwise, you know, incommensurable domains, if you want to think of it that way, come together through this whole neoliberal project? And that's what the overarching, um, you know, the idea of this research is to show that increasingly the politics of neoliberalism is to kind of have this uh, narrative kind of underscore not just corporate um uh, the corporate world such as the software but also to think about how you know things that were basic uh that were sacred that the conversation tried uh starts changing in terms of uh using you know phrases like using words like transparency and accountability and uh so this actually, being, being able to locate these two sides was actually very productive for my research. And it uh, and when I said that I did not want this work to be just about IT, I wanted it to be more about the politics of IT, who gets left out, who is included in this. Because with the water project, what happened, I worked in a <clears throat> couple of the slums in Bangalore and what they were called the urban poor, um, that they would now be inducted into this neoliberal framework and that they ha- would have to pay for water, which, of course, you know, created a lot of dissonance and a lot of uh, resentment. And so I was trying to show the class politics uh, in uh, in a city like Bangalore, uh, what what happens with a neoliberal project. And what kind of class dynamics? It's not that it's it's a new thing, but what it does, it reinforces older ones and also institute new forms of disenfranchisement. Mm-hmm.
1: Thank you for that. I think that sets up the uh, the book and the rest of our discussion mm. really well. You spoke a little bit about, uh, this was a, a project from uh, from your dissertation from your grad mm. school, but could you please tell us a little bit more about yourself before we go into the book in depth, a little bit about your academic background, where you, where you did your PhD mm. and where you are now?
0: So uh, I did my PhD at the New School for Social Research um, in New York City, and then I um, now I'm. Uh, then I joined uh, as a faculty at the University of Dayton, and now I'm uh, an associate professor at the University of Dayton uh, in anthropology.
1: Okay. Yeah. Great. Okay. Let's let's get into the, the the book in detail. You make a distinction early on in in one of the chapters between what you call sort of being inside and the outside of IT. A very uh, yeah. a very Binary distinction. Mm. Could, you, could you tell us what you mean by this and, and what this distinction tells us about belonging in the city?
0: So when I started, um, you know, my very first trip to Bangalore in 2002, then 2003, three, four. one thing that was coming across to me uh, from most of the software engineers and other corporate leaders or, or uh, employees at Infosys was that they were making this very important distinction between that outside and um, that outside. There is um, the things are going on in the same way, but inside uh, we are making progress. And by what they what they meant by the outside and the inside was the inside was not just the IT, but people and uh, practices which were attuned to you know corporate governance and neoliberalism, and the outside seems to be kind of. Uh, You know what Raymond Williams would call the residual, right? That it's there, it's kind of persistent, and that um, that it's kind of was seen by a lot of people at Infosys as somewhat problematic, and that would be, be damaging to the image of India that IT was trying to create. And when I say IT, I I don't think they necessarily just meant that everybody working in IT, but everybody that was part of this kind of neoliberal uh, imaginary, that the middle class is rising, you can now afford uh, cars, uh, go on uh, foreign vacations, uh, live in gated communities, So all of these practices and ideologies were kind of what they meant by the inside. But I I got really intrigued by the inside and the outside, but rather than looking from the outside from the inside, like looking at examining who gets left out from actually the perspective of the uh, software engineers and the software workers, what I did was actually turn it around and I actually looked um, looked into Infosys as a way to critically examine the practices and the ideology that were arising from that. So in some way, um, I think of this book as a way to think of IT as kind of a lens, right? You kind of refract uh, through it, like the social processes get refracted through this IT narrative. And I also uh, talk about a narrative that was very I mean, it was very, very uh, common and very significant in focus in was that IT is, um, IT is the panacea of uh, the corruption of India, right? This whole idea that India is a corrupt space, but then IT is going to be adhering to accountability and transparency and all of that. So uh, this antidote to corruption was a very strong narrative. The other narrative was that it's a very critical of the state, that the state is corrupt and it's because of IT, everybody's uh, noticing India, it's not because of the Indian government or the Indian state. So all of this became uh, what I call the uh, ethical political narrative, and I use the word ethics, it's because there is an ethical part to it, like you know the good and the bad, the corruption and the honesty. One of the things, one of the tagline in Infosys at that time was the softest, uh, the the clearest uh, pillow, the clearest constraints is the softest pillow. And they had a lot of ethical and moral narratives um, in the company that they would actually try to promote and distinguish themselves from the state. But it was also political. It was not just an ethical thing, it was a political, it was about power because um, later on, you know, over time, uh, at that time, when I was in Bangalore, Murti was being considered for um, being president of the country. And later on, um, Nile Kani actually uh, contested the elections. So it was not just a matter of distinguishing a corporate practice from the state, but also a matter of uh, kind of um, a redistribution of power between the state and the corporation. And overall, I'm trying this, tying... I, I tried, I tried to tie this, um, the ethical and the political narrative in terms of understanding that who belongs and how does one belong, right? I mean, and I'm using uh, the difference between what we would call the formal belonging, because, you know, one way, everybody is a citizen. So there's a formal citizenship, formal membership, but the substantive membership, like who is ideal citizen, becomes a very important uh, factor that I was interested in. Um, And how do we see the changing terrain and increasing disenfranchisement of the urban poor uh, in the city um, through water, uh, through a very basic thing. So that was kind of my thinking between inside and outside. And I use it as a binary, but I also kind of try to Complicated that it's not necessarily binary, but that that they are interrelated through a narrative that kind of um, connects them. Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. Wonderful, thanks for that. Um, let's now go a little bit into the sort of the nitty gritty everyday life of what of what mm. happens inside a inside a software company. And um, my question here is like, what's the link between you know the the work of software development? You know, and this mode of governance, which is promoted by those who work in the sector.
0: So, I mean, I had learned a little bit of software development as part of my work with this company in the U.S. Uh, one of the important things that software development, and in 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 many in a significant way, software engineers and software employees think of their work as an ethical work. It's almost that the computer program that you're developing, that you're working on is transparent and that there is accountability. And I talk about in my book, this whole idea of risk, like risk management, uh, which was a whole different, um, actually a division at Infosys that they would actually track and they use something called a uh, dashboard to identify projects which would which are running the risk of either not meeting a deadline or not meeting the requ- client requirements, and this was a very important thing. The part of the argument that I heard was that uh, if that Infosys was actually accountable to the client, that there was complete transparency and accountability, which is again, you know, we all know that's part of corporate government uh, governance ideology but you know increasingly it has become uh, something that i often heard being used for the water project especially when i would attend meetings with the international finance corporation which was another uh, donor uh, the water and sanitation project of the world bank they would constantly talk about accountability and uh transparency and that corruption that these were all antidote to corruption so between software development and water i saw this narrative constantly and these words constantly being um, uh, work now one way to think about this is when i would talk to um, people in the water sector and i would say but these two words actually come from corporate governance, and they would often say, "Yeah, but they are good words, these are good words these are these are standards we need to adhere to. However, it also became increasingly clear that to that these words as much as ethically they're sound, they are fraught with a lot of problems um and when we talk about such government modes of governance in the corporate sector, in the public sector, it creates a whole different form. For, in, for instance, it was often uh, discussed that there was a lot of problem with water supply in the slums, right? In the Now that people would illegally connect to the water line without paying for it and that they would call the unaccounted for water. So the unaccounted for water was leading to the loss of the water uh, board and things like that, that one needs to tackle uh, this kind of corruption. However, in my ethnographic work and, you know, when I would go to neighborhoods, I would see these kinds of connections in middle class neighborhoods as well. Like they were illegal connections. However, they used Now, those connections did come up in the Waterboard meetings and somebody would say, oh, yeah, but the middle class is fed up with the corruption of the state. And so they need to to find a way to do this. But the rhetoric for the slum was that it is illegal, that it's kind of criminal. So these two words kind of have very different lives and applications when you shift it around with uh, class. So in the middle class neighborhood, it's about well, they don't have an option, you know, what can they do? But the moment it comes to, like, the poor in the city, it would be seen as something illegal and something one should condemn and possibly stop. So these two words, when they travel, they don't necessarily have the same meaning. And I think that's a very important problem in the neoliberal ideology, that it actually privileges the already privileged and in many ways, it actually criminalizes, and you know, affects negatively the ones who are struggling. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Thank you, thank you for that. Um, my personal favorite chapter of the book is is chapter four, "Travails of Time," and uh, really, I think it's a really interesting discussion. My question for you here is: How do the Infosys founders and the workers position themselves in time?
0: So this chapter, you know, I really, this was one of my, I mean, I think most of my intellectual energy and this project went into this chapter kind of poured my heart into this. It was one of the most challenging chapters I was writing because I was trying to talk about time, which is not the easiest thing to talk about all the time. But time was a very important, uh, very important way that uh, the Infosys founders and uh, the software employees saw themselves, it was interesting. It was, uh, in some ways, they saw it as a dissociation from the past, that IT, or Infosys for that matter, is a dissociation from this troublesome colonial past, uh, but now that India is, you know, rising. And on the other hand, on the other hand, it was also important to think about the, uh, the projection of time, that the projection of time, and in some ways one could call it kind of the time of the nation of the national time because I mean it's it's kind of their idea of time, no doubt, that there was something that this dissociation from the past was necessary. And what I tried to do in this chapter is actually tie this uh, idea of time to uh, the post-colonial condition. Because, you know, as we all know, post-colonies are not necessarily linear because, you know, what's a colony, what's a post-colony? It's never a clean break. It can never be a clean break. So what I noticed um, at Infosys is kind of uh, a restlessness. And I think that's uh, what I would call what I call the post-colonial condition, that we are never quite um, comfortable uh, in the present that the present is always kind of elusive, that somehow the past we need to, um, you know, unmoor from the past, but then the future is always, always being uh, designed. And this kind of restiveness um, is, I think, uh, something that we think about, I think about in terms of, like, what does it mean to be a post-colonial subject? What does the post-colonial condition mean is that uh, we are always... um, you know, dissociating from the past, but then we're also thinking about the future, but never quite the present. We quite don't know what the present is. So uh, oftentimes the Infosys founders, especially the Infosys founders, they would always talk about how they founded the company, the struggles of the company and all of that. But all of these were underscored by the fact that uh, they were trying to build something new, and that newness had to do with um, the fact that uh, it's a question, it's a burden of history that they were actually addressing and that they were building a future that would look uh, different. And uh, it is also interesting, like in uh, in my work with uh, Janagraha, uh, you know, Ramesh Ramanathan, uh, actually, there was a film, and I talk about this film in my book. Uh, it's called Swadesh. Swadesh was supposedly uh, modeled upon uh, Ramesh Ramanathan, who uh, actually worked, uh, lived and worked uh, in the U.S. and also in London. But that he gave up everything to go to India, return to India, return, return is the keyword, return to India to uh, engage in what he would call the citizens platform. That it would be a movement, and his, the comparison was actually uh, with Gandhi, uh, with Mahatma Gandhi. That Gandhi gave up his career in uh, law to return to India, to you know, uh, lead a uh, lead the uh, independence movement. Now, Janagraha is actually the name of the NGO that Ramendra Ramatan founded. is actually inspired by Satyagraha, which was. Uh, Gandhi's uh, term and he always talked about Ramanathan always talked about that he sees these parallels between that this idea of return and sacrifice also ties to the idea of time that there is a way that we are they are also going back in time however the time is also selective it's a very selective borrowing uh, of the past so Whether it was Infosys or whether it was Janakraha, they were very fond of uh, Gandhi. Not so much about Nehru, though, because a lot of them argued that Nehru actually, uh, with his um, nation-building ideas, actually set India back. However, then anybody who is familiar with the work of Gandhi also knows that's not exactly what... Infosys or Janagra is trying to do is exactly what Gandhi wanted to do. But it's a messy idea. It is a very messy idea that there is a selective borrowing, there is selective amnesia. All of this kind of, I think, in this chapter, is trying to point to um, the, the way time actually forms what underscores uh, post colonies, like as a temporal. Concept, not as a uni- unilinear concept, but as a kind of concept that is very nebulous, that is troubled, that is kind of restless. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Thank you so much for that. The uh, final full chapter of the book is called "Black Box," which is a very intriguing title. Mm-hmm. When I when I first uh, opened the book and, and looked at the looked at the contents. I suppose what many people are listening at home are probably wondering now is you know what is this black box who is in it and you know uh, why did they prove so troublesome for those who are trying to change the city
0: So yes when I first heard black box I was as intrigued as you um, so the word the phrase black box used to come up very often in meetings in Janagraha Now I talked about the citizens participation So Janagraha was the one who would be designing citizen participation in the water project. And this would be funded by the water and sanitation program of the World Bank. So for quite some time, John was working with mostly middle class um, and things were going well. It was like, you know, citizens are participating. We were holding uh, citizens meetings on Sundays, telling people about how important this privatization project is. And the middle class seemed pretty on board with it. However, as time went by, um, World and Sanitation Project, um, they said that they will not be able to fund this um, citizens participation component is because uh, what Janagraha was missing in the design are the poor. And uh, World and Sanitation Project said, no, we cannot, you have to include the poor. (laughs) And that's when they said, oh yeah, okay. So we'll have to start working with the poor, which means that we'll have to start working um, in, in in the slums of Bangalore. This is when uh, the urban poor in the meeting started being referred to as the black box. Now, wh- what do they mean by the black box? As we know, the black box is like a technological term. Um, so you know, you input in the black box, and there is output, but you exactly do not know what goes on in the black box. Unless say in the case of an airplane, there is a disaster and then you have to open up the black box to find out like what went wrong. So the black box became kind of, you know, the metaphor that I use in terms of understanding the politics, like what is that politics of exclusion? Um, like what is the middle-class politics of excluding the poor? So we started, uh, you know, as part of Janagraha, and I I would go with them to all these meetings, we started working uh, with the urban poor and, you know, meetings would be organized and whatnot. But what I found there was that it still, the meetings did not really yield much because Janagraha went there with a script that was very much inspired by a middle-class affiliation of this and um, uh, so it did not yield much in terms of what the struggles for the urban poor were in terms of water um uh, because they when they when they would speak about water, you know it would be uh it would be uh, it's an everyday struggle because sometimes some of the slums did not receive water for you know uh days on end, and then they would receive water maybe a day in the week and then they again would have to. Uh, go through this period of having you no know, uh, water. However, the whole idea of these meetings became like, you know, how to talk about privatization and how fantastic this is. But then a lot of the, uh, you know, attendees at these meetings would talk about, yeah, but they are, we'll have to pay for water because traditionally, you know, um, below poverty level in India, people have received water for free and there is a way to think about water and and this and its in rela- their relationship with the state as kind of what they call the maiba which is like a parental relationship like mother father so the state would provide water for free because it's not only a basic amenity but also a sacred um, thing so but when these questions would come up in these meetings um, like <laughs> those would be vated because uh, Either Janagraha would not be ready to answer those questions or those questions kind of did not matter because after all, al in their version was the black box. So this became a very important way to think about the politics of this, you know, neoliberal governance and things about how we think about uh, narratives of transparency and accountability. But then what happens to the question of belonging. Like, does it then mean that we can only belong as consumers? Uh, what happens to the question of citizenship? And this is what I was trying to address through this uh, chapter called The Black Box, that um, it remained as something that is closed and that's something it's quite not desirable that we open up to understand. So it's kind of an understanding from... Uh, distance, that there is a distance. And that's where class became a very important uh, way to think about neoliberal change in um, in Bangalore. Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. Thank you for that so much. Um, for, I mean, as is often the case uh, on this podcast, I've Shot through an amazingly rich book in a very short amount of time. I think it's what is especially nice that obviously can't come across in the podcast interview, but is there in the book is you've left in or put in a lot of the conversations in their original form that you had with, you know, Infosys workers and the founders and so on. But uh, my final question about the book for you now is I'm just wondering is there something that you'd like to highlight that you think I've not touched on with my questions?
0: Yeah, I mean, Ian, you did a fantastic job. I mean, The questions were great. I think one of the things that I would like to just reiterate is um, I I want the reader to think of this book not just as an ethnography of IT. Uh, I think um, my worry is that people will think this is just an ethnography of IT. Uh, It actually is more than that, and it's more complex. And uh, to bring in water and software and IT together in the same uh, analytical field, what I really wanted to do is open up the question of the politics of neoliberalism and also to think about what happens in cities like Bangalore, which are, you know, at a stage of such wealth disparities. Uh, like what do we do this? So there is a way to think about this book as a more expensive and a complex uh, narrative and an analysis of uh, you know class politics uh, especially in cities um, in place in, in, you know, in India and what it does and the other thing is also like how these struggles increasingly get buried that we don't quite know of these struggles because somehow in the middle class you know rush to uh, consumerism or I don't know prosperity perhaps that these struggles have ceased to matter. Um, I, you know, it's been eighteen years that I've been in the U.S., and some days I actually cannot. Like when I go back to India, I find that I cannot quite relate to the country anymore, because the middle class values, you know, that we grew up with, are simply not there anymore. I mean, they're not not there, but they are kind of waning. And I find that that's an important thing to for the reader to think about is that, yes, the reason we do not know about these troubles, as I portrayed in this book about, you know, about water, is a larger issue. It's a larger issue in urban India that needs to be uh, addressed. So, yeah, this is a book that goes beyond IT. <laughs>
1: Wonderful, and a, and a great way to to end our discussion. Our traditional last question on uh, the New Books Network, however, is not to just look at the book that's just come out, but also to ask what your current and, and future research projects are.
0: Yes. Um, so, you know, when I was working on this project, I um, got really interested in politics and so neoliberalism, um, questions of belonging and citizenship. So I'm carrying actually doing, you know, carrying the, those um, Concerns forward, and since 2011, I have started working, uh, doing fieldwork, ethnographic work in Calcutta. And this time, I'm actually interested in how politics of belonging and citizenship, again in the neoliberal context, are affecting um, a group, uh, a group of sex workers in in the city of Calcutta. And my ethnography is based. In, in the red light district, Shonagachi, which is kind of the iconic red light district. Um, and that project is focused on um, a grassroots movement, a sex workers grassroots movement. Uh, it's an organization called Durbar Muhila Shamunai Shomiti. And it came about, um, the organization came about around the time HIV AIDS was an enormous concern uh, in, in India. So the women collectivized... Um, around the question of labor rights and health rights because now they were being, um, you know, further stigmatized as the carrier of a deadly contagion beyond what they were already stigmatized, right? Uh, So I think I'm trying to situate this project at the intersection of law and medicine. I'm specifically looking at anti-trafficking laws and then in terms of medicine i'm looking at the hiv surveillance uh programs and i'm but one of the important things in terms of the neoliberal part is that you know with anti trafficking there is this uh, idea that women who are migrating to shonagachi and most of the women i know in shonagachi are rural urban migrants Need to be stopped; that they they cannot be looking for labor. But most of none of the women I have yet to meet one who have said that they could not. I mean, they were they joined sex work out of choice. It was actually the opposite; it was the lack of choice. So on one hand, you have this, uh, you know, the global flows of capital and uh, neoliberal ideas of uh, you know freedom and uh, individual potential and whatnot. But I think it's still very selective because they do not really apply to the women that I work with because they are criminalized. And I'm working basically on looking at like how do they address this kind of construct of them as this um, mostly you know, criminal and how do they negotiate a new identity because they call themselves sex workers and dissociate from the older identity of the uh, prostitute. And the overall idea is to kind of, uh, I, I mean, I'm still working through a lot of the arguments. Overall idea is to kind of tie this to um, the question of the human rights of sex workers. So in October last year, Amnesty came out, uh, no, October, sorry, August last year, um, Amnesty uh, proposed to pro decriminalization of sex work. Uh, in terms of human rights, because obviously it affects their health and also labor opportunities. So how does this tie into a new identity that these women that I know uh, are trying to carve in this uh, world at this point? So, yeah, that's uh, kind of my current uh, project.
1: Sounds uh, sounds really important and, and really fascinating. We look forward to reading that in the future there's uh, nothing more for me to do apart from to thank you again uh, for coming on the podcast i really enjoyed reading the book i think it's uh, yeah both really ethnographically rich and m- makes us think in lots of different directions not only about it but about water and citizenship um so yeah thanks a lot for coming on the podcast and uh, for your wonderful book
0: thank you Ian. thanks very much
1: Thanks so much for downloading the new Books in South Asian Studies podcast. I've been your host Ian Cook and today we've been talking about Bits of Belonging by Simanti Daskupta. I really hope you've enjoyed today's conversation as much as I have, and I hope you download again next time. Ta